The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect Black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a Black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Reggie Perry Jr. Reggie does a lot. Uh, Reggie is a multidisciplinary creator here in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a skilled photographer, a graphic designer, a music producer, a video producer, and a motion graphics designer. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Reggie Perry. I'm a, my day job is media experience designer at the Home Depot. And um, I also have a design agency that I do a lot of my freelance work through. So that work includes a lot of motion graphics and animation work, video editing, photography, things of that nature. So pretty much across the board, creativity, um, even sometimes, you know, music production as Mm -hmm. well. So just a lot of different things that I do and have my hands in and, you know, kind of keeps it interesting for me. How's uh, 2023 been treating you so far? 2023 has been pretty good. Uh, a lot of good opportunities coming my way, which I'm grateful for and, and been working towards for several years now. So, so far, so good. And, and looking forward to seeing what the rest of the year brings. Do you have any plans for the upcoming summer? Um, I do have some projects that are going to be released later in the summer that I worked on earlier in the year. So the people that I'm, I worked on those for, those should be coming out like mid-summer. So I'm really excited to kind of see where those go and, and what they do. But other than that, you know, my day-to-day work and, and creating my own projects as well. All right. Let's talk about your work at the Home Depot as a media experience designer. I'm not sure I've I've heard that title, but then again, I feel like there's a lot of titles these days that are, I guess they just represent different facets of design. Like when I came up, it was like you were a graphic designer, web designer, web developer, et cetera. Tell me what is a media experience designer? Like what do you do at the Home Depot? 
in my role, I'm within the learning department, which is under the HR umbrella. So pretty much anytime someone joins the company, whether it's in the store, or whether it's on the corporate side, supply chain, pretty much across the board, they have their training. So it might be the orientations. It might be how to drive a forklift. It might be how to ring up a customer. And our responsibility is to work with the SMEs and the instructional designers to create the visual aspects of that. So that's photography. That can be shooting interviews. That can be motion graphics and animation. That could be creating like job aids and just graphic design work. So it's pretty much touches on a lot of different aspects of design and just to basically support the associates across the organization. Okay. We just had someone on the show a few episodes ago. I don't know if you if you might be familiar with him, but I think he also worked in the in education. Brandon Campbell Kearns. Does that name sound familiar? Yeah, the name sounds familiar for sure, but I'm not, I'm not completely yeah. familiar. Not that I've expected all black designers at, at, the, <laughs> at the Home Depot to know each other. I was like, well, he's in Atlanta. He's kind of worked in education. But no, that sounds really, really interesting. So you're kind of part of this uh, like overall education that's responsible for, like, I guess, getting people onboarded and just learning about different parts and facets of of working at Home Depot, it sounds like? Yeah, that as well as just ongoing learning. So whether it's like compliance training or if it's a new best practice that rolls out, whether it's like surveys, it could be pretty much anything. And we just work with all these different aspects of the business to kind of create the visual aspects for them. What does the team look like? You mentioned there's like some subject matter experts, some content people. Like what does that, what does that team usually look like? I'm a part of the media team. So Basically, there is four of us and we're all responsible for like creating those visual assets. And then an instructional designer or a SME will come to us and say, hey, we have this project. We want to have these deliverables. What do you think would be best? What can it look like? What's possible? And then we kind of work with them to figure that out. And then, you know, we'll schedule the shoots or, you know, if I'm doing a motion graphic, it's like, okay, here's this. They're sending me the script. We'll go over the scripts, figure out what assets we need. And then I'll build out that motion graphic. So it pretty much just depends on the ask that we get. And then once they ask us, we kind of interface with these different people to create the final deliverable. It sounds like you probably have like a steady like stream of work that's coming in because you're doing it across the organization for a number of different like initiatives or reasons or things like that. Yeah, but it also ebbs and flows. Like, for instance, this time of the year when people start going on vacation and stuff or around Christmas time, it's a little slow. And then sometimes it'll be just like, nonstop back-to-back projects. So it does ebb and flow, but there's always consistent work. It's cool because we actually get to see like the work that we do like out in the field. So if we go into a store and somebody's like, oh, I just did this training. You did that. That's pretty cool or something like that. Or if we Mm -hmm. shoot an interview in a supply chain facility and then that's on like the internal TV channel that's on up in all the facilities, like that's also cool as well. So there's a lot of different ways that our work gets out there and a lot of different aspects that we touch. Mm. Now, you've been there for, what, almost eight years now, it looks like. How'd you get started? 2015, when I was working for this company called Digital Sherpa, they actually got bought out. Uh, I forget the name of the company. They're actually in Atlanta, but, oh, it's CoStar. They got bought out by CoStar, so they closed Mm -hmm. down this whole section of the business. So I was just looking for my next opportunity, and I had actually got into photography that spring. So I was just shooting and shooting and shooting, and then um, actually my wife, who's my girlfriend at the time, her co-worker's uncle was at Home Depot and they were looking for a content creator. So I applied and she kind of did the introduction and then the rest is history. So that's kind of how I got on board. And 
that was within Crown Bolt, which is like a subsidiary of Home Depot. They do like door hinges and handles and shelf brackets and things like that. So that's where I started. And then after two and a half years, I transitioned over to the learning team. Hmm. So as a content creator, were you doing like pretty similar things to what you do now? Basically around that time was when there was like a huge push for Home Depot to get all of their SKUs, like to have lifestyle photos and to have alternative angles for the images and to have like videos on how to install these things. So a lot of my work at that time was say if it was shelf brackets, like here's all the shelf brackets. We actually had like a wall that was built with the drywall and everything. And we'd like set everything up and then I would take pictures of it. And then we change out the brackets and take pictures of that. And those will all be up like on the website under the SKU. So you can see different angles and close ups and how to install it and things like that. So that was more of the work I was doing at that time. So it's a lot of sort of, I guess, now is this instructional work? Because you mentioned this is on the website. So it's like under different products as well, right? Yeah. Especially like if you go to a, any any e-commerce site and you look and they you know have like seven or eight different images one might be a video one might be some of the directions and then two or three maybe like different angles or different color options so yeah yeah i was i was creating those images basically okay okay i think it's good to sort of hear that this is a position that people actually do i think you know when you look at you know different big box retail type sites like say maybe a target or a walmart you might not think that all of those different photos and things like that are done in house, you know? So I think it's good that people know that this is a type of position that you can do. That's still kind of in the realm of design at least. Yeah. And even with home Depot, there's like a facility that's South of Atlanta and pretty much most of the products that are sold in home Depot, like say it's like a, a Samsung refrigerator. They may send one of those refrigerators down there and they have like this whole studio with cameras that's going to capture images from 360 degrees. And then it's like, have you ever seen like those images of where like the drawers will come out or the doors will open mm-hmm. and you can kind of rotate it? Like that's, they do that kind of stuff there as well. So even like with that, of like building out a studio and having and shooting these products and then make turning them into 3D models and all that kind of stuff. Like there's a lot of different positions and jobs around basically e-commerce and like the imagery around it. Yeah. I mean, product imagery in general, I think in tech design, retail, et cetera. A lot of that is super important. And I think it's good to know that one, it's an in-house type of thing that you do, but it also sounds like it can be never ending because there's probably always new products or, you know, like you said, the work you do now kind of filters out into education within the the organization. So there's no shortage, it sounds like, of work to do, which is is a good thing, especially in this age of job security right now with layoffs and stuff. It sounds like you're pretty set. Yeah, it is never ending for sure. I remember in 2015, 16, and I'm sure all the designers who are familiar with Photoshop will understand this, but it was like at that time I had to shoot every piece of plumbing hardware. So like if you go into Home Depot and there's an aisle and it will have like a thousand pieces of like all these different just hoses and just all these different metal pieces and stuff. And I had to shoot all of those. And it was right before like the AI got good enough to kind of do the selection on its own without mm-hmm. having to use the pen tool. So I had to go through <laughs> like use the pen tool on like 2000 images. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> so it, it also kind of entails, I guess, a bit of, I guess a bit of production design too, because like you said, it's, you're doing this at a time before the tools really were sort of sophisticated enough to be able to, make this an easier type of task. Yeah. If I did it now, I mean, I would probably just create an action or a script and just run it. And yeah. Run in, in hour, you know? <laughs> Speaking of which, like what is the most challenging thing about what you do? I would say just 
managing expectations, honestly, because there are limitations to like some of the deliverables that we do, because a lot of these things will go out to stores across the country. Right. So some might be in more rural areas and may not have the fastest Internet. So we have to make sure the files are a certain size or we have to make sure like you want to shoot this, but this might require a budget. and You don't really have a budget, so we need to scale it back. And so it's just kind of figuring out and problem solving. But, you know, that's kind of what design is anyway. So we have to figure out what's the best solution for the learner that's going to get the point across in the most efficient way within the tool sets or the parameters that we have. Mm. You know, we, you know, sort of just talked a little bit about sort of how the tools have gotten more sophisticated. How do things like, say, AI and machine learning and things like that, do those sorts of things factor into the work that you do? They do, yeah. Some of the stuff, I'm actually doing a shoot on next week that we're basically recording someone who does like product videos and stuff so that we can turn them into like an AI avatar. So we have to record them with certain um, specifications and we have to do like 15 minutes of video, like HD and all this kind of stuff. So we're just now starting to kind of get experimenting with it. Mm -hmm. Some of the videos that we do, they'll have AI voiceovers, things like that. But for the most part, it's still kind of low key right now. Like we're just now starting to get into it as far as Home Depot goes. Yeah, I know. You know, we're recording this right now at a time where uh, there's this big writer strike going on. WGA Union is is striking and a a lot of writers are striking. And one of the sort of things that they want to be addressed by the industry, and I think this kind of maybe spills over into design a bit as well. I just haven't seen that many conversations about it. It's sort of how do tools, AI tools, et cetera, how do they reshape the work that we're doing? Is it replacing it in some way? Is it making it better? Is it making it worse? And, you know, just even what you're mentioning with like this AI avatar and things like that, do you see a future where AI is going to play like a more pivotal role in the work that you do? I mean, honestly, it's been around for a long time and has been in a lot of the programs that a lot of us designers are using anyway. A year ago, I learned Unreal Engine and with the metahumans and doing like a mesh to metahuman and all this stuff like that's AI machine learning that's building all that out. So you could take a picture of your face and turn yourself into a, a 3D avatar, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a program that I use called Cascader, I believe it's called, yeah. And it's you basically set your keyframes and then it will use AI to kind of interpolate the motion in between it, but also to add like the physics to it, like realistic physics and things like that. So things like that to me are like very, very useful, you know, and I think with as far as like the image creation and everything is it's great for coming up with ideas, but I can also see that it's definitely kind of has a look to it. So everything's yeah. going to kind of start looking the same. So you just got to kind of figure out your own way to use it and make your workflow more efficient. Yeah, I think certainly now with the fact that these tools are so commonplace to use, like a a mid-journey or Dolly or things like that, and you're starting to see larger companies kind of dip their toe into it as well. Uh, Microsoft has a tool called Microsoft Designer where you can just sort of put in a prompt and it will generate some AI images. I tried it. Not that good, to be completely honest. Wasn't that great? I was like, oh, this is trash. Like, (laughs) I wasn't expecting Rembrandt level work, but like, I mean, interns could do better work than this. Adobe does something similar. They have Adobe, I think it's called Adobe Firefly. Firefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adobe Firefly that does a similar thing. So I agree with you about the look. Like, a lot of the AI art and stuff I've seen has a specific look. And granted, I know that those looks have been cribbed off of like actual artists Mm -hmm. and such. So it's not even original in that respect. But It'll be interesting to see how AI sort of plays out with 
I think things like, say, interface design and stuff like that, where there are more set patterns and things that you could probably mm-hmm. create complete UI toolkits or, or something like that just based off of a prompt. I'm interested to see where this goes. I would love to see more of the kind of digital design community talk about it. I haven't seen a lot of talk about it. Maybe I'm not looking in the right place, but I would love to see more talk about how this sort of influences the work that we do. Cause I've, I've gotten, you know, some people that I've had on the show where like freelancers, for example, they'll say a client may come to them with an image or something that they created in AI and expect mm-hmm. the human artist to change it or to make it better or to improve it in some sort of way, which is like, is that what the future is going to be? I don't know. It's still, I think, a little early to tell kind of how this will really play into the work that we do. Yeah, I did see a video um, last week. I think it might have been like on Vox and it was this AI artist, which he was doing it in a way that I thought was really cool because what he would do was he would like create images, but he would do like several different passes of these images and do the in painting and out painting and all this stuff. And he was basically like putting himself in all these different locations like he was taking a selfie of himself. But mm-hmm. he would then take all of these images and put them into Photoshop and he'd take different sections of them and mask stuff out and add stuff to it and then do all the color grading. So at the, at the end of it, it looked like a totally different image. And I thought that was pretty cool and a, a very unique way to actually use it instead of just saying, here's some prompts, here's an image, I'm going to throw some text over it and I'm done, you know? Yeah. I mean, right now I think we're seeing AI start to flood the workplace in different ways. And I mean, this will affect what we do as creatives ostensibly, but I'm, I'm just going to be interested to see how this plays out because I think the, the point of mainstream adoption is probably still a bit a ways away, but seeing what's happened within the past, like nine months around the explosion of AI in layman type tools has been just kind of astonishing to see. It reminds me a lot of the early, early web and how those early days in like the, I don't know, like early 2000s, I mean, innovations were just happening like left and right, like trying to keep up was wild. You might have been doing something now, but in two weeks, that's going to be obsolete because now there's this new way to do it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's totally. it's really amazing to see how how it's sort of changing things now. Definitely. And now, along with this full time work that you do at the Home Depot, you have this design agency called Fox and Fee that you started kind of right as the pandemic started in 2020. What brought that on? Yeah. So basically, I've always been doing some freelance work for the last 10 or 12 years, and I wanted to just create my own design agency and entity and and build that up and, and build client lists and everything like that. So basically, at the beginning of the pandemic, a few clients had hit me up. So that's kind of when I started it, just so I can have everything, my paperwork right, my bank account, all that kind of stuff. And I named it after uh, two of my kids, Fox and Phoenix, so Fox and Fee Agency. And basically, when I was going into the office, I'd be getting up at like 445 because I live a little bit out north of Atlanta and I have to drive all the way like an hour to work. So I'd just get up, go to work, come back. I'd get home at like 530 and then I would really, wouldn't really have any time. But once mm-hmm. the pandemic started and I was at home, I was like, oh, I'm getting back like three or four hours of my day. Like, let me really dig into this and like start to build up my portfolio and build up my client list. And at the same time as well, like literally probably a month before the pandemic started, I started getting into uh, 3D design. So I was like, oh, I got all this time. Let me like really like dig into it and build and build and build. And 
now, you know, three years later, three and a half years later, there's like a lot of opportunities that have come my way. There's stuff in the works that I'm working on right now that it's like pretty big. And it's pretty cool to see like an idea that I had, you know, four or five years ago be a reality in the current time. So it was just something I always wanted to do. I just wanted to have my agency and design and make music and shoot videos and photography. So I just made it happen. How's that been going so far? It's been going pretty good. It's pretty consistent for the most part. Of course, it ebbs and flows. It's just kind of the nature of freelance. But I yeah. also don't take on work just to take on work. I'm kind of intentional about like the work that I do. You know, I work really hard over the last 10 or 12 years to be able to ask for the rates that I ask for and, and all of these kind of things. So it's like I just don't take on any work. But for the most part, it's, it's pretty good. It's an extra stream of income. It's a good stream of income. So I have no complaints about it. And I think that I'm just, you know, I'm about ownership. I'm about entrepreneurship. That's just kind of how I grew up. A, a lot of the people I grew up around, you know, own businesses and things like that. So it's always just kind of been in me anyway. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great thing to kind of have your own side business, especially when it's not something that you're 100% completely reliant on. Like you've got exactly. your full-time gig. And so you can be a lot more, I guess picky is probably the best word, but you could probably be a lot more judicious with like, as you mentioned, the projects you take on, the clients you work with, because you don't have to have this in order mm -hmm. to, you know, survive. Like you can pick and choose the type of work that you do. Yeah, because I've definitely been in a position before of trying to grow a business and have to, it needed to support me and I needed to survive from it. And that could be like a very, very stressful. So, and I've been in positions when I had a job and my side stuff started going well and I quit my job and then the side stuff wasn't going so well. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I've, I've done it. I've pretty much ran the gamut on all that kind of stuff. So now it's just like, I could be, I can pick and choose on what I work on. I still pretty much keep the same schedule when I wake up and go to sleep anyway. It's just, I don't have to commute. I don't have to get ready for work. I just mm -hmm. walk downstairs. So Instead of just sleeping in or doing whatever, like I'll just work out and then sit down at my computer and use that time where I would be sitting in the car to create and work on side projects and things like that. Yeah, I've definitely been there with my studio before, so I <laughs> I know what it's yeah. like when it has that kind of ebb and flow and some years it's good, some years it's not, you know, mm -hmm. and I think even with how the industry changes, like. I've recently kind of started getting back into doing more freelancing because I worked in tech. I mean, roughly for about the past five years, I've worked, you know, with different tech startups. But after this last layoff, I was like, you know what? Let me try to dip my toe back into freelancing and see what I can do. And I'm still taking on some projects, you know, kind of here and there. It's a lot different now doing it in my 40s than when I did it in my 20s. But the good part about it is I can, you know, sort of be a bit more. I guess, you know, cautious about who I decide to work with, the types of projects I do and really sort of what I put my name on, because that's another thing, you know, especially yeah. I think with uh, with black creatives is like the work that we're doing. What is it sort of speaking to in a larger sense? You know, so I <laughs> I'm there with you. I know exactly what I know exactly how you feel. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. Yeah, I was poking around on your Instagram and I saw uh, this is like fairly recently, too. You're also part of a um, agency called The Future in Black. Tell me about that. A lot of the stuff that I do that's like on my portfolio on my Instagram is uh, self-initiated. Like I'm like if I, I'm basically created a portfolio for the type of work that I want to attract and do in the future. Right. So a lot of that's just around like black culture, specifically around like I like the 60s a lot, like Malcolm X, James Baldwin, people like that. So just kind of focusing and, and building around that. 
And then Joy, who is the owner of the Futures Black, actually reached out to me maybe about six months ago. She's like, oh, I love like this Malcolm X piece that you did. Like, I would love to talk to you more. Let's kind of stay in touch. I'm building something. So she's been building this. And she's actually like a former makeup artist. So she's done like a lot of different movies and TV shows and fashion design shoots and stuff like that. And she's kind of getting more into like the design agency aspect of things. And she reached out to me. She's like, any clients that I have or bring on, like, would you want to partner with us? And, you know, you do any of the 3D or motion graphic work? I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So she just launched about a week and a half ago and started pushing it out there. And we're going to see what's going to happen. Nice. Congratulations. I appreciate that. How do you balance all of this? <laughs> you, you have the outside freelance work. You've got your nine to five. You also mentioned you have a family and kids. How are you balancing all of this? To be honest with you, I just really focus on learning the tools and being efficient. Right. And then also just like idea generation. So James Altucher, actually, when I used to listen to his podcast a lot, was like, just write down five ideas a day or 10 ideas a day. And, and the more you write them down, the better your ideas will get and the easier you'll be able to come up with ideas. And I, I don't actually write them down, but I'm always kind of like thinking of stuff, right? Like what 3D project can I do? What piece of music can I make? What graphic design or motion graphic project can I do? And I'm always just kind of thinking about like what would be cool to make and thinking through it. I kind of think through things in my head before I even sit down at the computer. So I sit down at the computer because I do have limited time because I do have a full time job and I do have children and everything like that. It's like it just kind of pours out. So I might be doing other things like cooking or cutting the grass and I'm thinking about it. So I'm not thinking about it in front of the computer and getting frustrated. So that's kind of how I approach most of my work, to be honest with you. And also, I'm just not going to just take on work for the sake of taking on work. Like I do Mm want to take on good projects that I'm excited about. Like I'm sure you've been there. Like you might have taken on a project that you're not really excited about, but you just want the money or need the money. Mm -hmm. And it's like second day in, you're like, I just want this to be over. So. You know what I mean? That's another thing, too. If I'm excited about the project, then the energy comes, comes right. And if yeah. I'm not, then it kind of drains me. And I just don't want to be drained. I want to keep my energy up. I want to be working on things that I really want to be working on. So that's another reason why, like when I mentioned about building up a portfolio of the kind of work that I want to do, that's kind of the purpose behind that. So when opportunities come my way, most of the time, there'll be things that I'm actually excited about and want to do instead of things that I have to do. Yeah. I have a hundred percent been there. I mean, we can talk about it after after the interview, but I have, I have definitely had some some projects where it's like, look, I just I gotta pay rent. I gotta get these bills. I gotta get these bills paid. I might not be excited about it and doing cartwheels in the street, but I'm like, it's work. I'll do it. Yeah, I've been there totally. Let's kind of you know switch gears here a little bit because I want to learn more about your backstory. You mentioned to me before we started recording that you're kind of right outside Atlanta. Are you from kind of just the metro Atlanta area? I grew up in Hall County, so in Flowery Branch, Gainesville area. Okay. So that's why, you know, from the time I was three until my 20s, I I was there. I lived out in L.A. for about three years, but then I came back. So but most of my background, most of my history is, is here in Georgia. Growing up, were you sort of a really creative kid? I mean, you're doing all this stuff now. I imagine that probably started at an early age. Yeah. I mean, I was always drawing and stuff. And my dad actually was into computers and stuff when I was growing up. So, I mean, I was on the computer since I was like six and this was before Windows. So like, you know, C prompts and all that kind of stuff, running MS-DOS, putting in floppy disks. So I've always been kind of 
like into technology, into art, drawing, taking art classes, pretty much my entire life, to be honest with you. Mm. You went to Georgia Southern, um, and then after that, you went to the University of North Georgia. How were your college experiences? Like, did it sort of help prepare you for the work that you do now? I would say not at all. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, Georgia Southern was cool. The reason why I transferred, because like you said, you're in your 40s. I just turned 40 last year. So if you remember those early 2000 days of, of anything about Georgia Southern, it was known for a party school. Yeah. And yeah. I was just like, no, I, I got to try to focus. I was really into music back then. And I was like, I just want to just focus on this and not flunk out of school. So that's why I kind of transferred out. But I did learn a lot about, you know, networking and meeting people. And like, I'm just by nature an introvert. So to be in an environment where everybody's just like, hey, like, what do you do or where are you from and stuff? That, that was kind of helpful when you first go to school because everybody there doesn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And then I actually linked with a bunch of different people who had similar interests and within like music and art and things of that nature. So that was helpful. But when I went to North Georgia, it was pretty much just go to school, go to work, come home and, and make music like every day. That's pretty much all I did. Were you kind of more into music back then than design? Yeah, I really didn't. I kind of got out of design and like kind of creating for maybe like about seven or eight years. I was just focused like oh. primarily on on music. And then around 20, I want to say 2009, 2010 is when I really kind of started getting back into design and digging more into Photoshop and Illustrator and just learning the tools and trying to become more efficient at those. So prior to that, you were just kind of doing like music production stuff. Yep, pretty much. I mean, that was a look, I, I was in Atlanta during that time. I mean, the music scene here was blowing up. I mean, really becoming known. I mean, we've, I think Atlanta kind of has always been known as a a big music city, particularly a big black music city. But I just remember during that time, there were so many artists coming out of Atlanta across like all genres too. So I could see how, I mean, shit, I was actually a musician (laughs) myself back then. (laughs) I'm talking about it. I was, I was a, a session musician. I played trombone. And so I would sometimes play in some clubs play a a gig here or there. And I was doing this kind of alongside my day job. I was in 2005, I was working for the state of Georgia. Then like from 2006 to 2008, I was working at AT AT&T. But then at night I was either doing stuff for school because I was in grad school or I was like playing a gig somewhere. And just Mm -hmm. the, the energy in the city, I would say probably that extends out probably throughout the metro area, but certainly in the city, the, the energy around just the music scene here was so big back then. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like the conferences and then it used to be like Atlantis and then eventually A3C kind of stemmed from that. Yeah. Stuff going on at Apache Cafe and like the beat battles and the showcases and stuff. So Mm -hmm. those are good times for sure. I've played Apache a few times. Yeah. (laughs) Great times. I remember that. Yeah. So you were kind of getting into music production, but then you said you got back into design like around like 2009, like 2010. What sort of prompted that shift? Well, I mean, throughout that time when I was making music, right, I, I would need like some design work or need to make a flyer or something. So I would dabble here and there, but I was never really serious about it. But when I started and I, I know you mentioned you want to speak about this anyway. So when I started Project Generation D, I started creating all of my own uh, like marketing collateral and stuff because. The reason why that whole project even came about and company came about was because of 2008. I had just graduated two years before. 
I had a young child, needed some money, jobs were, it's kind of almost like now, huh? like everybody's getting laid off and jobs yeah. are hard to find. So I had to do something. So I created this company to teach kids uh, like music production, video production, graphic design, all this kind of stuff. And I didn't have money to pay anybody to make my logo or marketing collateral. And I had enough knowledge to do it myself. So that's kind of mm-hmm. how it started. And then I would start getting a few freelance clients here and there. So I just kind of stuck with it and started building it. I was like, oh, this is going to be like a good stream of income and a good way to build upon what I have going on with music. And that's just kind of how I got more serious about it. Yeah, I'm looking at the website now for Project Generation D, which is dubbed an after-school program for children and teens ages 12 to 17, dedicated to providing students with a positive environment to flourish in the creative digital arts. Yeah, the 2008, I think that was right when the recession happened then. And I had, I remember that year vividly because I quit my job that year and started my studio. I was working at AT AT&T, hated it, hated it Mm -hmm. to the point like it was giving me like, I I thought I had like Crohn's disease or something because I would physically get sick going into that place Uh, (laughs) to the point where I was like, I I can't do this anymore. I, I, I quit and started. So I started my studio in 08 and we started picking up work in... Oh nine, and I mean I've continued it since then. But yeah, that time was really kind of an interesting time, just in terms of opportunity, as well as I think, particularly I think if you were working in design, it was an interesting time because so much of what was happening in the country around one Obama getting elected. Well, I'd say mainly with Obama getting elected is a lot of his work. I want to say kind of played to the fact that it, that great design went into it. And so if you were a designer kind of working in that space, not even in the political space, but just in design during that time, so many people wanted that same type of polish or execution or, you know, diversity to be, you know, completely honest around the work that they were doing because they saw what Obama was doing. And this wasn't just in politics. This was like across design, like, I'm pretty sure the folks that made the Gotham font probably had dump trucks of money because everybody wanted to use that damn thing everywhere. (laughs) Certainly, certainly. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting time. And but yeah, it's like you have to when times get hard, you have to do what you have to do. And if you have those skills, you got to kind of lean on those skills and, and build what you can to to survive, you know, and that's basically what I did and built upon that, you know, since that time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier Digital Sherpa, which is where you worked in 2014. When you look back at that time, this is sort of after the Project Generation D time. What do you remember? Like, like what were you sort of going through at that time? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was at that time. So, yeah, like the we got laid off. It was a very interesting time because, you know, I was producing music all throughout pretty much mainly until 2011, 2012. And I actually had a song that like blew up and it blew up overseas and had like, you know, 60 million views on YouTube and all this kind of stuff. But it was like, I had signed a publishing deal, but it was like, I didn't see any checks yet or anything like that. So the business basically shuttered, had like $40,000 of debt, moved into like an old apartment, like was just looking for jobs all the time, couldn't get a job. So that's, I actually ended up getting a job at Sherpa and then I was also like tutoring at the same time. So I'd go to work like, you know, eight to four, eight to five. And then I would go get like a snack or something or like a quick meal. And then I'd go tutor from like six to 9 p.m. like every day. Wow. Um, so I was like kind of just doing that, just trying to build. And at that same time, too, is when I started really digging into 
after effects as well. It's like, oh, like I think this after effects thing like has some potential if I can really figure it out and like learn it because it's a little bit it's like graphic design, but it's like motion. I like the, I like the motion aspect of it. So at that time, I ended up getting that job and it was when blogs were like really, really big still. So like companies were like, I just need a blog. I need a blog. I need blog posts. So mm-hmm. basically the first position I had was I think it was like content manager. So we contract out writers and then they would write blogs and I would like proofread them and make sure they were good to go for like all the clients that we had. Like it's mostly like small businesses from around the country. And then I moved over to um, account manager, which is this kind of interfacing with the clients and things like that. So pretty much most of my day to day was just like kind of overseeing content, making sure the blogs were getting written, they were correct and getting posted and dealing with any issues that the clients had. But it was just a 2014, 15 was really just a time of like hustle for me, to be honest with you. Like I had the job, but I was also tutoring and I was also like trying to design more. So I would like come home if I wasn't tutoring that night and like be trying to make art pieces and stuff and figure out Illustrator more and Photoshop more. So during that time, it was kind of like a blur, but it was really it was a hard time. But it was like in retrospect, kind of a good time because it really laid the foundation for my life now, like, you know, nine or 10 years later. Man, so much of what you are mentioning is <laughs> is my story as well. Like I, I had my studio back then, but I was also teaching and I was writing and I was consulting. Like I was doing multiple different things to try to, you know, keep the income coming in, keep myself creatively, you know, kind of satisfied and stuff. And it was also kind of really coming at a time where the industry was was changing like I would say roughly about 10 years ago might have been the start of when we started to see so much like UX, you know, mm-hmm. like I feel like that's when we started to see UX and product really begin as a viable option for designers. Like, you know, like you said, we're roughly around the same age, like in the early 2000s, even like say mid to late 2000s, you were either a graphic designer, or a web designer or a web developer. And then as the industry kind of matured and changed, you have all these different types of design that pop up different titles go with it there's different titles with different companies like if i tell people i'm a designer now like in 2023 they might automatically think i'm a product designer or ux designer as opposed Mm -hmm. to say a visual designer or something like that so yeah that time there was a lot about hustle but the hustle came because there were just so many opportunities to do different things Mm -hmm. because that's what the industry kind of allowed you to do it allowed you to kind of wear a lot of different hats in that way. No, I mean, I remember, you know, 2015 or so going to the General Assembly open house for the UX course. You know, I was considering that at the time. So, you know, it was just it was a very interesting time. And there was like a lot of different avenues that you could take. And now a lot of these positions and jobs are are commonplace. But at the time, it was like, oh, what's what's UX? So like, Mm -hmm. what exactly does a product designer do? Like, you know, so that was where I was at at that time. Now, when you look at what you're doing now compared to what you kind of did then, I'm curious, like, how do you handle creative burnout or like periods of of low motivation? Because I would imagine all of this, like I said before, kind of takes its toll. But when you look back then and then you look at what you're doing now, have you kind of managed any sort of strategies or ways to kind of pull yourself up during these times of burnout or low motivation? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that it's okay to have low motivation, right? You're not going to be going at 100% all the time. So instead of forcing it in those moments, usually what I'll do is just step away. So if I don't feel like making some 3D piece, like I pretty much, I cook a lot, right? So like cooking is a form of art. So like I'll do that. 
or exercise or I just like catch up on a TV show or play some video games. Right. And then I'll see something in a TV show or a video game or I'll come across something and, and it will just spark some creativity. And then I'll go back and build off of that. But at this point, after creating for so long, I, I just try not to force it. It's going to come. It's going to come in spurts. Right. You're going to have times of like very high productivity. And you're going to have times where like everything you make, you just want to just smash your computer because you hate it. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's just part of the game. I think that's just kind of like how we are as, as humans. Right. So everything we make isn't going to be great, but you just have to learn how to manage what works for you and figure out some like routines or steps that you take to kind of get out of those funks to get back to creating again. That's a really good piece of advice, I think, for folks now that might be trying to figure out what is the best way to kind of manage themselves through all of this. Because, you know, you mentioned you started your your agency at the beginning of the pandemic. I feel like that pandemic period, particularly with people working at home, kind of unlocked something in them to say, oh, wait a minute, I could also do this or I, I think so many folks started getting on TikTok really back then. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, oh, well, you know what? I was doing this nine to five, but I could be a content creator, which I kind of have beef with that term in general, because I feel like it it glosses over so many different skills and specialties within the realm of content creation. And sometimes it can even be used kind of as a misnomer. If you tell someone you're you're a content creator, you're like, oh, wait, so do you do a podcast? Do you do OnlyFans? Like, what does that mean if you say I'm a content creator? Like, it's such a broad kind of term, you know? Yeah. And I I mean, I'm glad you said about a pandemic because I I viewed it that way since pretty much a day one. And I mean, I've told my wife and I've told like a lot of my friends as well. I'm just like, I've been waiting for a time, not for people, you know, to be sick or to pass away or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. But as far as like the opportunity to invest a massive amount of time into something to, to grow a skill. Cause you got to think like when the pandemic started, like we, you got to think of all the phases that people went through just on a broad level. Like there was GameStop and then there was crypto. Then there was the metaverse. <laughs> now there's AI. You yeah. know what I mean? But it's like through all of that, I'm like, also there's time, right? And the time is like really our most valuable asset. So what am I going to do with this time? So I, I took that time and added another skill. Cause I'm all, I'm really big on like, a unique skill set or like a skill stack. Right. So it's just like if someone come to me and say, I want to do a short animated music video or film and they need the music for it and they need to have the poster created and they need to cut a trailer of it and have all these different aspects. Like I can do all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's because I I utilize that time to really put in those hours. So and and I mean, I do hear you about the content creation. Like, it's almost like it cheapens the value of people who've spent the time to learn the craft and the skills, right? Because like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I just post videos on TikTok and, you know, I make money off of that, whatever. But it's like, what if TikTok goes away? Like, that's not really a transferable skill of just posting on TikTok, right? But if you yeah. can design, if you can create an application, if you can do all of these different things, like you're going to be able to figure out your next move from that, you know? And that's what I wanted to use the pandemic for was I have this time. Let me add more skills. That's going to future proof me moving forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're using TikTok as an example here. I mean, I do think that there is a skill to that, but the problem that I see is that the skill is so closely tied to the platform that exactly. it's hard for and I, I mean i see this with some tiktok folks too like it's hard for them to take success that they've made on one platform because the platform locks them into a specific way of maybe delivering content 
that doesn't translate into a similar type of medium. So for example, TikTok to Instagram or TikTok to YouTube. There are people that have millions of followers on TikTok and have like 45 followers on YouTube because mm-hmm. it just doesn't translate. And I and I don't know if it's them not being able to transfer the skill to the platform because the skill is so tied to like what the TikTok app allows you to do within its creation tools. I remember this was like back when I started my studio, my friend John, <laughs> we had started a business together and he had found me through Meetup. There were like these web design meetups in the city and he had like just graduated from UGA. This white boy just graduated from UGA. And um, we had met at a Panera Bread up in Buckhead. And I remember one of the first questions he asked me because he was like, I'm looking to get into web design. Should I learn HTML or should I learn Dreamweaver? And I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> the language itself is probably better than learning the tool because the tool is just a tool that's like saying, mm-hmm. should I learn carpentry or should I learn how to use a hammer? Like it's it's a difference in that. And I think sometimes with, you know, the tools like TikTok or example or things like that, you can get so locked in creation within that particular toolbox that you can't transfer it over into something else. Like you can't take the success that the platform or the algorithm or whatever TikTok gives you and transfer that into a magazine article, a blog, a long form video, a podcast, et cetera. Like the tools and the algorithm, I think, can sometimes lock creators into a box that is hard for them to get out of. Yep. And I think that's why, like, even a few years back, like, if you look at, like, Jesus and Mero, like, they were actually able to translate from Twitter to a podcast and to a TV show, right? But there's plenty of other people who were funny online or on their YouTube channels who try to make the jump to, like, TV or the radio and just bombed, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the same concept. Yeah. It can be tough to, to make that... uh Make that leap to make that jump, especially if you're just not able to transfer the skill that you have outside of the confines of the platform that you were kind of initially on. Definitely. Yeah. I noticed that you refer to yourself as a creator over referring to yourself as a designer. Is there a like a specific reason behind that? I just like to create, right? I, I mean, there's. I wouldn't say there's no sp- a specific reason behind it, but I do a lot of things, right? So if I make a motion graphic, for instance... I'll go create my own music for it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, I guess, where that comes from. Or I create meals. Like I'll have friends over, or I have family over, and I'll be on the smoker for five hours and create like an experience in that way. So that's why I kind of look at it as more of like a, a creator than just a strictly a designer. Yeah. Do you think it's hard to, well, I don't know what's the best way to kind of frame this question, but I notice a lot of designers now are strict specialists. Like the work that they do is only within like a specific type of design. Like they can only be a product designer or UX designer or something like that. Not to pick on product or UX folks, but they can only do what they do within that particular realm. And I feel like designers like us, like older designers, I think, because we came up during this period where there was just so much opportunity because we were learning at the same time that the company, not the company, the same time that the industry was learning and sort of discovering new things that we know how to do a lot of shit, (laughs) you know? I mean, I was doing 97, 98. I was making like cash money websites on GeoCity, learning HTML, you know? Yeah. Like I remember teaching myself HTML. I remember teaching myself Photoshop off of like a cracked version of Photoshop and then going to like Barnes and Noble and looking at those like $50 Photoshop's tips and tricks books 
mm-hmm. just taking photos and like bringing them home and using them on my cracked version of Photoshop to figure out how to make that, you know, sort of pixel and pen Diamante kind of like cash money design or something like that. But we know how to do a lot of things because the industry and just I think the time period we were in allowed us the opportunity to do multiple things. It's almost like now people want you to be more specialist and generalists and like designers from our age, our age group, or I would say, we just know how to do a lot of stuff. Like you do audio editing, you do video, you do 3D, you're a photographer. Like all of this is, is kind of wrapped up into what you do as a person and as a creator. And I think sometimes in the industry that can be hard for people to understand, like, what do you do? And you're like, I do a lot of stuff. What do you need? You know? Yeah. And, but also too, I mean, from my perspective with starting the agency, right? Like if the agency continues on a good trajectory and it continues to grow, obviously I can't do everything myself. Right. Right. So if I need to outsource, I want to know what to look for and I want to be able to speak the language. So if I'm talking to a photographer, I'm just going to be different from talking to a video editor than talking to a, a graphic designer. Right. So I want to be able to understand and explain and the lead and the coach and say, Let's try this instead of that, or let's do this instead of that, or maybe we should use these file formats instead of these file formats, right? So that's kind of how I, I look at it being kind of having knowledge of all these different areas is because then in the future, when I'm working with my own team that I hope to build, I'll be able to speak their language and to be able to break it down and, and to communicate with them on on their same level. If that makes yeah. sense. No, that makes sense. How would you say your creative style has evolved over the years? It's kind of hard to to say because even like musically over the years, like I've never really had like a definitive style. Like I just, if it moves me or if it feels good, I like it. But I feel like over the last three or four years that it's definitely started to kind of form into something more concrete. Um, You know, I just like clean design for one. I just, yeah, just like clean, sophisticated Something that can like draw emotion, especially with like the 3D work, if it can kind of take you into the world, like building those worlds and kind of bringing the viewer into that. So, I mean, I would always say that the underlying aspect of all of that, though, is really kind of like the storytelling. Like you have the visual aspects, of course, but the key parts for me is like, what's the story that's being told and does it kind of evoke emotion? And I think that's kind of like what I focus on is more than like what it looks like. It's going to, hopefully it always looks good and people like it. And I like to experiment a lot, but my style, I guess, would really be more of like a storyteller, just using all these different mediums to tell different stories. Now you do a lot of self-initiated projects, as you've mentioned, like we can look on your your website or your Instagram and kind of see these little like video vignettes and other things that you've done. Do you have a dream project that you would love to do one day? Actually, I mean, I think I'm working on it right now. Um, I can't really discuss it right now, but yeah, I think I'm. I'm think I'm working on it right now, actually. Okay. So we'll uh, we'll keep it we'll keep it vague. So once it comes out, it'll be a big surprise. But no, that's yeah, great. Yeah, I got I got to keep it vague because the NDAs and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I feel like the work that I've done over the last three years has been definitely, like I said, I've been very intentional about the work that I create for myself to attract the kind of clients that I want to work with. So I think that. Since I've done that, I have actually even like the the future is black, right? That comes from me creating work that I want to do in the future. So, you know, it's all been very intentional. And I think that now 
a lot of that stuff that those dream projects and the type of people that I want to work with and the type of projects I want to work on are, are coming to or showing up in my inbox. What keeps you motivated and inspired these days? I mean, not to sound dark, but death, to be honest with you, we're not going to be here forever. So, you know, we've got to use our time wisely. Last year, I actually lost my dad. So that kind of just like lit an extra fire under me that was already under me. And as we get older and you start seeing people that you've grown up on, even to see something like Jamie Foxx having a medical emergency or something, you're like, hey, we, we really are like the middle age now, you know? So it's like, we don't have half our life is done. So it's like, we have to really figure out our legacy and what we want to leave behind. And that kind of, that kind of motivates me to, to keep going and to keep getting better and just kind of try to be the best, like not just creator, but human I can be in the time that I have. Mm. If you could go back and, and like talk to your like college age Reggie, if you could go back and talk to him, what advice would you give him about just like being a creative I mean, it's probably be the same advice that I've given myself throughout the years anyway. It's just like, keep going, you know, it's going to take time. And I've always knew it would take time, right? Like people always say like it takes 10 years or whatever to be an overnight success. So I always knew like whatever I wanted to do would take time and I would have to have the discipline and keep motivated to get to those goals. But also just be open to the possibilities and the opportunities that come your way, right? You have, you might have a specific vision in your mind of how you want things to turn out or how you want things to be. And it might not turn out that way. And when it goes in a different direction, it might actually be better than what you thought it would be. So you just have to be open and you just have to keep going and, and stay focused on what you want to do for sure. Like you got to have a plan, you got to execute that plan, but don't close yourself off to other opportunities that may open up even more doors for you. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want sort of that next chapter of your legacy to be? I mean, my goal right now, especially like with the 3D is to be like to tell black stories through a medium that is traditionally not black. Hmm. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out just more information about you, more information about your work? Uh, where can they find that online? My website is uh, reggieperryjr.com. And then my Instagram is at nobody famous. And that's pretty much it. I don't really uh, mess with Twitter or anything else. And But yeah, if you want to see some of my work, you want to connect, I guess the best place would be like through my website via email or my Instagram. All right. Sounds good. Reggie Perry, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One, I think just thank you for just kind of detailing your creative journey. Like I had mentioned before, like so much of what you mentioned has been kind of like neck and neck with things that I've experienced. So I really kind of know exactly where you're coming from with your thoughts on just like content creation and, and just creation in general and, and using the skills that you have to put your mark on the world. I think it's important that people see that you can have a long career in design and creativity and, and whatever you want to call it. As long as, like you said, you sort of put in the work, stick to the plan that you have, like things will, will kind of work themselves out. And basically from what I can see from your work, you definitely have put in the long hours. You've done the work. You're continuing to do the work. So I'm excited to see what you do next. And I think certainly what you're mentioning about telling black stories like that through maybe kind of a non-traditional medium. I see that definitely in the future happening for you. So Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. 
big, big thanks to Reggie Perry Jr. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Reggie and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify. You could follow us on Amazon Music. Or you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We love that. You could even leave us a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.